Welcome to the Talking Poem Podcast. I'm your host, Charlie Green. On each episode, I invite a guest to bring in any poem they'd like to talk about for any reason. We'll talk about what delights us, what excites us, maybe what frustrates us, and we'll follow the poem and conversation wherever they turn. Afterward, we'll have a little bit of silliness and a poetry game. I'm so happy to have as my guest today, Carolyn Oliver, who has brought in John Milton's Sonnet 19, When I Consider How My Life Is Spent. Carolyn is the author of the collection Inside the Storm, I Want to Touch the Tremble, which won the Aga Shahid Ali Prize in Poetry, and the Alcestis Machine is forthcoming from Acre Books, which makes you a label mate with previous guest Amit Majmadar. She's also the author of three chat books, the editor of the Worcester Review, and the winner of too many awards to mention here. Carolyn, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for inviting me, Charlie. I'm delighted to be here. Good. So you brought in Milton. Are you a big Milton head? Oh, I don't think I would consider myself a Milton head. But I, years ago, in another life, I did spend quite a bit of time with Milton, though not this sonnet, which is why I wanted to talk about it. So I, I like Milton. I like reading Milton. I don't think I'd want to hang out with Milton like on a personal level, you know? I, I feel that's true with most poets. I read Paradise Lost as an undergrad. I read it in a class, and the teachers loved Milton. So we read Paradise Lost, Paradise Regained. Oh, Paradise Regained. That's that's rough. You know, Yeah, you shouldn't have to do that after you've read no. Paradise Lost. It's a real come down. Yeah, it's, it's, and, it's all the syntactic mess without any of the fun. Yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. That's my way of, noti- of, of mentioning, by the way, I have not thought about Milton in a long time. That's okay. I'll let you go ahead and read the poem, and then we'll talk from there. Okay. When I consider how my light is spent, ere half my days in this dark world and wide, and that one talent which is death to hide, lodged with me useless, though my soul more bent to serve therewith my maker and present my true account, lest he returning chide, doth God exact day labor, light denied, I fondly ask. But patience to prevent that murmur soon replies, God doth not need either man's work or his own gifts, who best bear his mild yoke, they serve him best, his state is kingly. Thousands at his bidding speed, and post or land and ocean without rest, they also serve who only stand and wait. Thank you. Because it's Milton, can you give us a quick gloss on the poem or a quick paraphrase or summary? Just, you know, it can be a little hard to take him in first time through. Sure. So this is one of Milton's many, not many sonnets, but um, his a chunk of sonnets. This was probably written in the 1650s. And at this point, Milton was blind. He was not born blind. He became blind in midlife. And there's been various scholarly arguments about what exactly it means that his light is spent ere half his days. But he's essentially asking, what am I supposed to do with my life? now that I am blind. He's a significant figure in the English Revolution. He had been writing polemical prose in favor of the uh, the righteous knight, essentially. And at this point, now that he is blind, he's wondering, what am I supposed to do with my talents? With my He was a prodigious reader and writer. And when one becomes blind, he didn't obviously did not know how to deal with that. And yet somehow he was able to compose the sonic. He was technically very accomplished. So this is about, let's say, 20 years before the publication of Paradise Lost. Um, actually, I'm, I'm sorry, not 20 years, more like 13 years. Yeah, depending on how we're going to date the poem. I do have to ask, because you really talked about the first half mm. of the sonnet, because the second half is 
this long quote from patients. Yes. I'm curious. Well, let's go straight to the last line. They also serve who only stand and wait. Because I've been just looking at this line and looking at it. And I'm curious how you understand that those they also serve. They also serve God is how I'm reading it or potentially the king, which we can get into. But the who only stand and wait. Yes. So it's definitely about God. Pretty everything about in Milton comes back to God. I mean, Paradise Lost Mm -hmm. is a theodicy, a way to just literally justify the ways of God to man. And Milton's he's, he's extremely religious, of course. Milton's question here is, how do I serve God? Like at, at first, this was obvious. I was to serve God by serving this godly endeavor, which is to rid the English people of tyrants and institute democracy in a republic. And now I can't do that in the way that I was doing it. So how do I do that? Now, how do I serve God? And so the the answer comes from patience, from within himself, within this this faculty of patience, who replies, God doesn't actually need anything. God is omnipotent. God doesn't actually need anything that you do at all, you know. Or since this is he is talking to himself, who best bear his mild yoke, they serve him best, his state is kingly. So the only thing you can really do to serve God is serve God. It's almost, you know, a, a tautology. So when patience says thousands at his bidding speed and post or land an ocean without rest, patience is talking about angels. But there are also, there's a host they also serve who only stand and wait. So you serve God by what you're doing, which is waiting for what God mm-hmm. tells you to do. And also within the poem is embedded initially the parable of the talents from the Gospel of Matthew. So we have Milton juxtaposing one part of the Bible with another part of the Bible. But he has the parable <laughs> of the talents in which a master goes away for a time and gives three servants three different measures of um, silver, which is the talent, and tells them, do a good job with this. And then two of the servants invest and make a good return on their investment. And the, the last servant has one talent and is so afraid to misuse it that he hides it and does not grow the talent. And when the master returns, he's very, very angry with the last servant and in fact, cast him out into the darkness. Yes. So that's in the first half of the poem. And then we have the juxtaposition in after the Volta, in which we have the notion of who best serve God, bear his mild yoke, they serve him best. And that's also lifted from the gospel where Christ himself says, I am your rest, let me be your rest. So the parable, of course, the parable is also spoken by Christ, but in this case, the second half of the poem is a sort of a gloss saying, yes, that parable is, that's important. You're not supposed to hide that, your gifts, but also superseding that is this this merciful rest that God offers. Yeah, exactly. And the, the parable of the talents, you quoted most of it. I pulled the whole quote and it's relevant to the poem. Cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. The outer darkness phrase is so fascinating to me because it, it, it sets up that he's going to be in an inner darkness in a way in that you can read his outer darkness as his blindness or inner, like the outer darkness has this, like, we are putting you way on the margins mm. and blind blindness could be read as a kind of inner darkness. This is simply one lost faculty, but you are still within the kingdom of God. You are still serving the master. Yeah. So, and he talks about. I mean, Paradise Lost has. There's a very famous passage in Paradise Lost in Book Three about light and how he, he, the poet Milton, is cast is in has darkness, but yet the light is within, and and so on and so forth. 
I'm glossing that very poorly. No, that's fine. I'm big on oversimplification here. <laughs> Stand and wait. Those are the words that really I, I kept spending a lot of time with. And, and I'm going to belabor it a little bit. Hopefully not belabor so I was looking at the OED, different meanings of stand and wait, different uses. And this poem is cited for both stand and wait. I love it. And particular meetings. So stand is, this is their definition where they cite Milton. And I'll give some others as well. So stand is with and and the coordinate verb. So stand and wait. And it just means maintain a standing position while performing a specified action. It, it puts basically this definition puts all the emphasis on wait. But the other meanings of stand seem more relevant to me here. One is to take up an offensive or defensive position against an enemy, which I think mm -hmm. is relevant thinking about, you know, patience as a virtue, potentially taking up against governmental enemies, but also, you know, sin to be of use or help or advantage or to serve in some manner to endure or last and then to remain upright or and more or less entire rather than fall into ruin or be destroyed mm -hmm. and so you know milton loved you know multiple meanings to words and those other definitions for me are much richer than what it's cited as in the oed standing in the literal sense of standing up doesn't seem that interesting to me here no i think i think more in the sense of withstand I think that's that's mm -hmm. a, definitely a valence there, especially because mm -hmm. the poem the poem isn't published actually until 1673, right before Milton's death. Uh, Milton dies in 1674, so by the time this poem is published, it is in public view. The English Revolution has failed. Milton came very close to being executed, and um, <laughs> only with the intervention of, of various uh, friends and patrons was he spared. The thing that he has had hoped would happen at the end of of tyranny as he viewed it uh the english monarchy they've been restored he's he's lost his cause is lost he's blind two of his wives are dead like you know it's not it's not a great time for Milton by the time the, the poem is actually published so i think withstand has even more of a veil it's perhaps once it's published than when it was initially composed i like that reading it makes a lot of sense in part because it, it also makes sense as withstanding your blindness mm. suffering it in this way that this is the mild yoke that you have to bear. It could could be worse. I mean, he must have had a, a prodigious memory to keep all of the different languages in his head and readings. And honestly, I don't. I'm not even sure it's the most affecting of the poems on, that relate to his blindness. The poem that I tend to just spend a lot more time with, back when I was thinking about Milton a lot more, was "Methought I Saw My Late Espoused Saint." Which is also a sonnet because I was very into not into but studied maternal mortality. And that's about, <laughs> and that, so that poem had more, more resonance. So I'd be happy to read that one too, eventually. Sorry. I'm laughing that, that you had to say not into maternal <laughs> mortality, like that into is not the right word. Into there, is the yeah. wrong word for sure, for sure. But I was studying it. So Milton, like so many English poets had quite a lot of familiarity with that. The weight is the other thing here. The OED cites it as to be in readiness to receive orders, to be in attendance as a servant to attend as a servant does to the requirements of a superior. And this makes sense within the context of the poem a lot more than that that usage of stand. It's just you're serving God, you're waiting to serve God. And what's interesting, if you stand and wait, you may never receive those orders. Yeah. You might just wait. So you might just keep you just might, might be in a holding pattern forever. And I think that makes sense too is serve appears three times in the poem. It's, it it's very much a poem about how do I Milton is a very deeply religious, how do I serve God, how do I how do I do this? 
with this new limitation. Yeah, exactly. I skipped the, the question I often start with. Why did you choose this poem? Because you said there's another poem about his blindness that affects you more. So why this one? Well, this would leave to mind as a poem to think about because the other sonnet I associate because of my particular interest more with maternal mortality than with blindness. So it wasn't the first one that popped up. But I picked this one in part because I hadn't spent a lot of time with it. So I knew I could benefit from thinking about it with you. And also uh, because I was having some problems with my own eyesight such that I could not read or write, which was deeply alarming and disturbing. And yeah. that has since cleared up. But it was it brought to mind this one really rapidly and how disorienting it is when one cannot do the thing one is used to doing. And I was really at a loss. Like if I, if this were permanent, how, what would I do? And of course, you know, we live in the modern era and we have access to things like Braille and listening libraries and things like that. But Milton didn't. He did have access to eventually to people to transcribe and to read to him. Yeah. So do not ask me to pronounce that word. I can't. <laughs> Every time I see it, I cannot pronounce it. Which word? Oh, don't, don't, you're trying to trick me. No, spell it. Um, a, well, I'm not a great speller either. Uh, A-M-A-N. Amanuensis. U-E-N-S-A. Thank you. There you go. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pretend that I'm pronouncing it correctly. Amanuensis. I assume that you are. So. Milton would correct us. My wife would probably correct me too, because I I can't remember what word it is now. I think I've, I've subconsciously stopped using it, but there's some word I pronounce strangely. And she's finally like, that's, that's not how you pronounce that. We all have words like that. We must all, just from like, from reading, you pick up words that you've seen forever and you have no idea. Do you know, I recently learned, and then I will get back, this is a little, little sidebar. I recently learned that the word I have thought of always is solder, S-O-L-D-E-R, is actually solder. I know that. We're, we're going to stay off track here. I know that because there were, when I was in college, there were welders working adjacent to the building where... Long story short, I was in a very small honors program. We had our own lounge, which was a mistake on several levels. But <laughs> several of my friends at the time were very mean because welders, <laughs> they tend to wear these very specific caps that are very colorful and have these large brims. It's essentially to protect your forehead, your hair. And they went and bought some to basically make fun of the welders and thankfully the welders did not oh, no. but but for some reason I remember learning the word solder then I don't I don't remember the specific context by the way since speaking of technology I'm going to ask the Merriam-Webster dictionary to tell us how to pronounce amanuensis and then if it's if it disagrees with me I'm going to edit this out so here we go I got to make sure the volume is up amanuensis that sounds like what I said did you hear it yeah well done. That PhD wasn't for nothing. Anyway, back to the poem. So you said you didn't know this poem as well. I'm curious kind of what surprised you here, what you actually ended up liking here, or do you like it more or less, do you think, when you first than when you first encountered it? I don't, you know, I don't actually remember particularly well first encountering it. I think actually for the people who are not as invested in maternal mortality, this is actually the more much more famous Milton sonnet. I don't think it had mm -hmm. fully registered to me that uh, Milton writes Petrarchan sonnets. That's interesting. I noticed, mm -hmm. too, it's very enjammed. There's a lot of enjambment, which softens, I think, a lot of the rhymes. He's got a bunch of internal rhyme, too, that's carrying, keeping lines linked together. My scansion is nothing that I want to talk about. <laughs> My general sense is that okay. he's using emphasis in very particular ways. A lot of the, most of the lines seem like 
pretty regular to me, except when he wants to make a particular emphasis. So like, for example, line 11, bear his mild yoke. There's a, there seems to be a lot of extra uh, stresses in that line. Yeah. As if like, so bear almost has the force of an imperative, even though it's because of the enjambment, it is not an imperative. That's interesting. And then also the third line and that one talent, we get the and that are on I read is unstressed and one talent with that emphasis because it is death to hide it for him. Yes. Yes, that's a great one. Good point. And then serve. I didn't I don't think I, I fully realized that serve appears three times mm-hmm. in in 14 lines. That's a lot of appearances for one verb. It really is. I do want to say that I'm impressed that it's in English. It is a Petrarchan sonnet, which if anyone needs the reminder, has many more rhymes, A-B-B-A, A-B-B-A, and Italian just has more words that can rhyme like that than English does, despite English having more words. But it does lead to some of these syntactic moves where it is fitting the rhyme, which I tend to be somewhat forgiving of with literature up to the 19th century. But the second line, ear half my days in this dark world and wide, and it just... That that wide feels a little forced there Ew. to me. And I, I, I find myself, it's not an issue in Paradise Lost because he's not rhyming, if, unless I've forgotten. No, he's not rhyming. Uh, no, thank Although you. Although it, it, it reminds me of the last lines that Paradise Lost, right? They took their wandering way and slow. Isn't that where we're Let me see. Hang on. I brought Paradise Lost with me because it's fun getting out my Nerd. big sack of books. I know, I know, I know. That one didn't bug me at all. Yep. Wandering steps and slow through Eden took their solitary way. So that's a big Miltonic tick. I'd have to think more about it. Yeah. But I mean, that whole, the whole thing, if you think about it, up until Kingley is one sentence. He's he's pulling mm-hmm. that sentence really yeah. a lot for a long time. And also, if you were coming to the poem completely cold, doth God exact day labor light denied? So that's line seven, I fondly ask. You might have a hard time reading that with the appropriate interrogative tone if you didn't know what was coming next. And and it's one of those things, it's an incredibly skilled sonnet. Like you mentioned, all mm-hmm. the enjambment and, you know, it's the way he has these great caesuras and the pauses and and i do my sense is that he has a very good ear for rhythm yeah it's just i you know there's there's the that tick of milton's i get a little resistant to you would definitely want to use that judiciously that particular kind of thing i also wonder too with that particular line in line two in this dark world and wide it puts more emphasis i think on dark than wide i think or maybe it's balanced by the fact that wide is the last line the last word in the line. I'm not sure. I'd have to think more about that. For me, it puts the emphasis on wide. Yeah. And I think it's the fact that it draws so much attention to itself. And and part of me also is like, well, why not make make it my days in this world dark and wide? Mm. Although then dark and wide can modify days as well as world. I don't know. I feel like I'm getting into the weeds Boom. a little bit with this. Interesting. So, but that's that's what I feel like that my memory is of reading Paradise Lost is that, that sometimes what happens he's really interested in moving sentences around and syntactic inversions in part because they can create these kind of weird multiple references that enrich things in a lot of ways yes and i think too there's a there's a sense of narrowing 
because Milton, before his blindness, had he had traveled a lot. He did the grand tour. He he was lucky. He sat like Shakespeare. He, didn't, he wasn't poor as a child. He came from a relatively privileged background and was able to do the grand tour and went to Italy. Meg Galileo did lots of fun stuff. And then, you know, he's out and about being the polemical artiste of the English Revolution. And then uh-huh. uh, suddenly, no, no more of that. I do want to add one other thing, because you you mentioned, you know, this poem, it all comes back to God. Oh, yeah. And it does very much. But something I learned is that he was also contracted to do translation work for the Commonwealth. And what's interesting is that part of what he's at here, there's all this language about day labor, all the language about something lodged within him useless mm-hmm. and thinking about use and and that, you know, his state is kingly. There is all this language connected to government kingly. And if he's doing this for government, there is, I think, also that double concern. Obviously, it comes back to God, but there is all this language of like government and thinking about his actual purpose economically, my true account. So, you know, there it's in there that sense in which he is serving the government as well. Although, depending on when he wrote it, you know, it's either ironic or it's sincere, <laughs> given his feelings about the government. Yeah, I think I think the general, as far as I'm aware, the general scholarly consensus is for about 1652 to 1655. So right. we're still in the period between the regicide and the restoration. So yeah, I think, I mean, it's a public facing kind of poem. He's talking about public work. And I think that's why initially when I read it years ago, it was less effective or more, less interesting to me than the other poem. And he also has a bunch of sonnets that are explicitly political and um, polemical. The other thing is, is I was thinking about this, the thinking about it, the talent in terms of being translation, <laughs> that is so much harder to do when you are blind, I would imagine, than writing a poem because you can write the poem and commit it to memory. In his case, he was able with Paradise Lost to have someone transcribe it. And so... That talent isn't useless, I think, in the same way as trying to translate necessarily. I mean, I think he did continue to translate. I'd have to like po- open my other Milton book. <laughs> um, <laughs> because I think with, like the next poems that appear after this, this particular edition are Psalms that he was translating. And apparently when he was reading, he liked to have different languages. When he was reading the Bible, he liked to be reading it in different languages all at once. Mm-hmm. The man was a genius. He was just really, yeah. really competent in a lot of ways. Again, don't think he'd be the most fun person to be around. I mean, I think John Donne would be pretty fun to have a beer with. This guy, yeah, Psalms 1 through 8 translated and dated in various months of 1653, at which point he was already blind. I feel like he would have had those potentially to memory already. Yes. Oh, yeah. I would not be surprised at all. Other things you'd like to say about the poem before we transition to the silliness part. I would kind of like to read the other the other sonnet. Absolutely. If you wouldn't mind. As a counterpoint. I won't mind at all. And I will link to it in the show notes for people. Oh, lovely. It's, it's you know, the sonnets are numbered differently depending on who's doing the numbering. So sometimes this comes across, I think, as sonnet 23. And sometimes it's a different one. Sometimes it itself is sonnet 19. I don't know. It depends. And so the context for this is it's dated roughly the same period. And Milton's first two wives died either directly or as shortly thereafter, shortly after childbirth. Uh, but most consensus, and I think I would agree, 
uh, is that this is about his second wife, Catherine. Methought I saw my late espoused saint brought to me like Alcestis from the grave, whom Job's great son to her glad husband gave, rescued from death by force, though pale and faint. Mine is whom washed from spot of childbed taint, purification in the old law did save, and such as yet once more I trust to have full sight of her in heaven without restraint, came vested all in white, pure as her mind. Her face was veiled, yet to my fancied sight, love, sweetness, goodness in her person shined, so clear as in no face with more delight. But oh, as to embrace me she inclined, I waked, she fled, and day brought back my night. Oh wow, that's sad. I mean, it's a oh, it's yeah. the good kind. Of, it's the good kind of sad. It's really moving, and I I want to spend more time with that now. Yeah, it's a good one. It's a real heartbreaker. Yeah, and it doubles as self promotion. It has the word Alcestis in it. Carolyn Oliver is the Alcestis machine. <laughs> you know, I'd actually because it had been so long since I had thought about Milton. I suspect that that poem was circulating in my subconscious. But until I cracked open Milton, the complete shorter poems, to talk to you for this podcast, I had forgotten that Alcestis was in that <laughs> was referenced in that particular sonnet. It's weird the way things like that will just stick in your head, Alice, or or just lurk without you truly realizing it. Before we get to the game, we have an ad, and Carolyn, I have a question for you: Have you ever bought tickets using various resale apps like SeatGeek or StubHub? I have not, but I know people who have. Okay. Well, have you been scoping out the lowest ticket prices to see public readings by British romantic poets? We know you're bothered by the high cost of seeing the reanimated dead perform, but that's because you've been using the wrong apps for buying tickets. Forget Seat Geek. It's time for you to use Keats Geek. Keats Geek keeps its prices low so you can buy Ren and reshell e tickets to your heart's content. <laughs> Keats Geek guarantees you'll get your money and your words worth. And they don't sell tickets with obstructed views. Your sightline will never be blaked. Nope, I'm sorry, that's a typo. Blocked, blocked. Forget those other <laughs> apps with their rude wasting of old time. Quit what mad pursuit of expensive tickets and join what wild ecstasy at Keats Geek. That's Keats Geek. All ye know on earth and all ye need to know in the app store. Because... <laughs> <laughs> oh good Su suitably uh suitably funny for for you good i loved i love puns i wish i were good at coming up with puns i will say it's a curse mostly because my brain is kind of always there's a part of my brain always devoted to coming up with them and it's, it's not always conscious it's just it spits them out it's a it's not great for conversation you know, in my family, it, our, we have a similar problem, but it's movie references. And sometimes you'll even forget where yeah. the reference is. It's usually Moonstruck, but, you know, it could be almost anything. I am going to have to correct this. I've never seen Moonstruck. <gasps> you should rectify that immediately. It's fantastic. Truly fantastic. A little context for listeners, since we're recording this on Zoom, she has lifted a hatchet uh, and is waving it at the camera. <laughs> for those of you who see... Moonstruck. Actually, no, it's a big dive. I will. That will make that sense to you, funny. Charlie. That will make sense to you soon. As soon as you watch Moonstruck, come on, share. I don't like to share. How can you resist? I feel that. I feel. I feel oh, that it cages oh, no. me. 
Oh, oh, no. So you know what's waiting for you in Olympia Dukakis. Me. Oh, well, that's fantastic. Uh, another fun fact. Uh, one Halloween, I went as Michael Dukakis. I was a, <laughs> I was a weird kid. Carolyn, do you know who <laughs> William Logan is? I do know. I don't know him personally, but I know of him. Well, if anybody doesn't, this you may have remember this from a previous episode. He's a poet, he's a critic, and he's probably best known for writing scathing book reviews. So today I'm bringing back a game that I call Tell Us How You Really Feel, William Logan. Very simple. Did you play this I'm with Julie? Read... Yes, it... I did. Yes, I remember that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Eventually, I'm going to have everybody on from our little poetry writing group, and they're all going to have to play this game. <laughs> it's... <laughs> So I'm going to read you a snippet of a review that Logan wrote and give you the names of three poets. You have to guess which poet it is. Okay. And just to denote, these reviews are from the past 25, 30 years. So something that may seem true today may not have been when he wrote the review. Okay. So do you have any questions before we play? Will you edit this out if I am completely in trouble and like in danger of embarrassing myself? You're like, there's no danger of embarrassing yourself here. The okay. embarrassment's on Logan. Okay. Carolyn Oliver, are you ready to play Tell Us How You Really Feel, William Logan? I guess we'll find out. Charlie Green. Number one. Poet blank is widely acknowledged as a prominent player at the table of modern American poetry, according to the flap copy of his new book. I hadn't gotten the memo. American poetry is now apparently just like the World Series of Poker, with a 10 grand buy-in and the prospect of internet fame forever. Actually, that sounds like a poem by like this blank poet, but it's the kind he rarely writes anymore. He still has clever ideas, but he no longer knows what to do with them. Is it A, Tony Hoagland, B, Billy Collins, or C, Dean Young? Oh my goodness. Uh, that was scathing. Yeah. Hmm. You know, I feel like it could be either Tony Hoagland or Billy Collins. I will say Tony Hoagland. Oh, I'm so sorry. No! It is Billy Collins. Ugh. This is why I put in the thing about, you know, these reviews being older, because this is a review before I think Billy Collins really became lodged in the American consciousness as comic poet X in a way. Mm. All right. Number two. Blanks, perky up to the minute verse has all the disadvantages of charm. The poems in this book skate along in helter-skelter fashion, picking up their subjects as they pass, then dismissing them with an airy wave. Most contemporary poetry is so modest in its ambitions, so sluggish in its designs, so mean in its aftertaste. You wonder why anyone would bother. Not the poet, of course, since poets ever hope to occupy some rocky ledge on Parnassus but the poor reader, a skittish devil-may-care poet like Blank is a partial antidote. Is it A, Beth Ann Fennelly, B, Denise Duhamel or Duhamel? I apologize to her. I don't think she's a listener, but I apologize for not knowing how to pronounce her name. Or C, Sharon Olds. So Beth Ann Fennelly, uh, D- Denise Duhamel or Sharon Olds? I'll say Denise Duhamel. Sorry, you're 0 for 2. No. That is Beth Ann Fennelly. Ugh. Now, I just want to reiterate that there is no embarrassment to not knowing these. And I'll say this. So early on when I was thinking of, of the show, I was thinking I would have three games and one of them would be reading contemporaneous reviews of 
poet X. And what I discovered in reading them is that they tell you almost nothing. You can't distinguish them at a certain point without sentences with the name of the poet or the title. And his reviews at times are better at that, but he's also trying to be scathing in the way that I, at a certain point, I really liked when I was like 21 and now I find just kind of tedious. So I don't think he's a listener to the show either. Number three, blank has been a brand almost longer than she's been a poet. And having become a brand, she no longer finds it necessary to write poetry, just a pasteboard and tinsel version that makes readers ooh and ah if you say the right things about the right things in a style that would not trouble the average high school student or a particularly brainy toddler. That would drive to distraction, however, anyone who expects poetry to possess subtlety or the memorable use of language. Uh, this is not a video podcast, so I'll just say the look on Carolyn's face is appropriately squeamish. Is it A, Mary Oliver, B, Rita Dove, or C, Naomi Shihab Nye? Mary Oliver. I'm sorry, it's Rita Dove. What? Yes. I'm sorry. That's yeah. the kind of, like, like not reading close enough misogynist criticism that I feel like it's leveled at Mary Oliver a lot. But Rita okay. Dove? Are you kidding me? Oh. Yeah. Ugh. And the... This is the second negative Rita Dove I've had in a game, this game. Well, the other one had I this... thought it could be Rita Dove because, I mean, ob- other than the obvious, just does not sound like Rita Dove at all. Also, no, it doesn't sound no, like anybody else's not. critique of Rita Dove, which is... No. Yeah. Wow. That's a bad take, William Logan. Really bad take. Really bad take. Such a bad Number take. four. The, the takes are so bad you haven't gotten one right. Again, this I is know. not on you. Number four. Through the peculiar, uh, pardon me, through the peculiarities of contemporary taste or just by dumb luck, blank poets, slight, often inconsequent poems have received the blazing fireworks of attention. His book blank, sorry, their book, their book blank won a Whiting Award, the Forward Prize, and the T.S. Eliot Prize. Not long after, they received a MacArthur, sometimes called the Genius Grant. Their style might be called Frank O'Hara light if most of O'Hara's poems weren't Frank O'Hara light already. The young poet's lines curve it and cavort like a dancer with two left feet. Again, Carolyn is appropriately looking pained. Is it I mean, A, Mark? Oh my God. Oh my God. So, all right, continue. Go ahead. You can, you can say your piece in a moment. Is it A, Mark Doty, B, Ada Limon, or C, Ocean Vuong? Okay, first I'm going to say, because... I do live in Worcester, and Worcester will claim Frank O'Hara as its own, even though I think he was technically born in Grafton. Uh, don't insult Frank O'Hara. It's not nice. And second of no. all, uh, Ocean Vuong. Well done. It is Ocean Vuong. You've gotten one right. Thank you, God. Our yeah. final snippet, number five. Blank's easygoing charm and labored whimsy have a 70s feel, as if the Bee Gees had never retired. The prose poems in blank tilt toward contrived fables and dopey meditations, at worst self-indulgent musings after the imagination has shut down for the day, and at best, Kafka light. Blank has always been a misfit in American poetry, his sleight-of-hand surrealism only half-embraced, his strongest emotion subject to puckish doubt. He's a master of the throwaway line, 
and also the throwaway poem, but I've used that joke about Ashbury. Is it A, Billy Collins, again, B, podcast favorite Russell Edson, or C, Mark Strand? You know, I don't read as many prose poems as I should. Are you trying to give me a hint with the podcast favorite thing? I don't know. No, I just recorded another episode that's coming out this Friday about Edson. So I have two Edson. I do know that you like Russell Edson. I did, I did remember that. Um, you know, I truly don't know. So I will go with Mark Strand. Well done. Two out of five. You redeemed yourself here at the end. <laughs> if redeemed is the right word. The reason I like this game is that, it again, it does not matter if you get these right or wrong. Really, it's about where are these takes coming from. So, And I'll mention, I was really surprised to learn, given how often William Logan writes these sort of hatchet job reviews, and they're almost always about someone who's well-known, and he often mentions that they've been rewarded, as he did with Ocean Vuong. He really likes Ada Limon. Really? Yeah, which I was totally shocked by. So anyway, Carolyn, thank you so I mean, much. For- oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say, I mean, I, maybe it's a good thing that the scathing reviews are reserved for folks who can, you know, weather that storm. Yeah, I think so. I will say when he writes positive reviews, I really appreciate them. I think he is mm. really intelligent in those and he's really able to get at what the poems are doing in a really precise way because he's not trying to come up with a memorable phrase. Mm, that's interesting. If, you, if you're listening, Still. yeah. If you're listening, please don't, you know, please don't take your spotlight. <laughs> if, if, if you are a listener and you're friends with William Logan, please don't tell him about this podcast. There's only so much hate I can take. Carolyn, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Charlie. Is there anything? Yeah, I had a lot of fun. And you laughed appropriately at the Keats Geek ad. I hope that you don't have to add it out to make it intelligible because I know that the laugh can be a little bit of a high-pitched cackle. As somebody who has to listen to his own voice week after week, I can't criticize anyone's laughs or voices. <laughs> Is there anything you'd like to mention or plug before we go? I have a book coming out next year, as you pointed out very kindly. Thank you. But it's not available for pre-order yet, so I can't plug that. I have other books. And also, you know what? You could hear my own dulcet tones uh, reading my first book, Inside the Storm, I Want to Touch the Trouble. It is available as an audiobook. And I will tell you, as listeners of Charlie's podcast, that my husband, who Ben, who was wonderful, made me a blanket for it recording studio in our basement. So that is the behind the scenes thing about the audiobook version of that book. Well, now I have another question. I, I'm assuming yes. he took down the blanket fort because you're no longer in a blanket fort. Yes, he did take down the blanket fort. Uh, he, we had to record it in our basement because, uh, as you may hear in the background of this podcast, uh, we live on a very busy street, so we needed to record it at night in the basement so the sound would be dampened and the blanket fort was an extra layer of sound dampening. But it was, That's great. it was pretty fun, too, to be in a blanket fort with a big microphone. It was great. You know, this is, again, uh, behind the scenes. When I was starting the, ep- the the podcast and I knew I might be recording in my office, I thought about buying a bunch of U-Haul moving blankets to put on the wall uh. and, and then remembered that I am fundamentally a lazy person and then discovered <laughs> that there is a recording studio on campus. So, Oh, do you actually get to record in a studio? Yeah. In fact, one person who, uh, Rebecca Morgan Frank, when she walked in, said, this is nicer than the New Yorker's studio. 
Whoa. Okay. Well, that's a flex right there. Yep. Wow. Yep. Well, because apparently she would know. I know. That was the the double. I'm not meaning to call her out for for name dropping or bragging because it was not presented not that all. way at all. Well, are you kidding? For- I would I would definitely brag had I seen the New Yorker's audio studio just in passing. I would, I would wear a monocle. It. I would wear a monocle and a top hat and have a <laughs> butterfly on a leash. Anyway, thanks for listening. If you enjoy the show, please leave a five-star rating and a review. These help people see the show. So if you like it, that helps. As always, go have a great day. Read some poems, pet some dogs, and support striking workers wherever you find them. Bye. <laughs>